You're listening to a message from Victory Christian Center in Farmer City, Illinois. For more information on Victory, please contact us at bccfarmercity.org. Well, praise God. Welcome to church this morning. If you have your Bible, open it to Psalm 23. Uh, I want to begin there. I don't know if you've heard this psalm. Yeah, right. Maybe the most well-known psalms in the whole book of psalms. But I want to start through this morning. I want to read the 23rd Psalm in the context of what we've been studying. We are talking about being led by the Holy Spirit, following Him through the avenues and courses and decisions of our life. And so with that kind of a mindset, let's go read the 23rd Psalm. We'll start right in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, I know most of us didn't grow up on... Even if you grew up on farms, I don't know if sheep aren't as common around here, although I remember them from my youth. But do we know what a shepherd is? It's in simple terms. A shepherd leads and protects his flock of sheep. It's really that simple. That's what's going on here. So Jesus is our shepherd who leads us and protects us. Verse 2, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We have some leading going on here. Um, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now I'll pause for just a moment. I'm not saying I'm an expert on sheep herding 2,000 years ago, but I I read a book by a guy who knows a little bit more about it than me. His name is Philip Keller. And just a couple things he pointed out. um, Actually, he made the comment, the rod and the staff are two different things. And he said, in modern times, a rod has become synonymous with a handgun. (laughs) One of the things you do with the rod is you protect. It is a defensive weapon that a shepherd would use to protect when something's trying to attack the sheep. But he says, that's not the only thing the rod would do. He said, the rod was also used when you're inspecting and counting sheep. In fact, a phrase you'll sometimes see in the Old Testament is passing under the rod. And what that phrase is talking about is being inspected by your shepherd. Um, A quote out of his book, he said, This means not only coming under the owner's control and authority, but also being subject to his most careful, intimate, first-hand examination. He's looking you over. He's pushing the wool around. He's kind of looking to see how the condition of the sheep is. And he's checking all the things a shepherd would check. It is a very intimate examination. I'll leave it at that. Um, Then he says, now, where the rod would convey the concept of authority and power and, and even discipline or defensive danger, he said the word staff... Um, speaks of everything that is long-suffering and kind. He said the staff is primarily used to direct, to guide, and to position the sheep. So there's, with the staff, there's a lot of leading. There is guidance. There is direction on the way that a sheep should go. Um, in verse 5, it says, "...you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies." You anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. I love that verse. But all I want to say then, in the context of how we're trying to read this, we end up at this table that is full of abundance, 
And it's not a heavenly table because it's in the presence of our enemies. So that's a table here on earth that has just got everything we need in abundance. It even, even has cups that are just flowing over. It's more than we need. It's running across the table. It's pouring onto the ground because it's too much. How did we get to that table? Leave it in context. Several times he said, he's leading us. We arrive at that table because we've been following the leading of our shepherd. And he led us to this place of abundance. And not just that, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want to read that verse out of the Amplified. It says, Surely or only... Goodness, mercy, and unfailing love shall follow me all the days of my life. And through the length of my days, the house of the Lord and His presence shall be my dwelling place. How did we get to the house of the Lord? How did we make His presence our dwelling place? Same answer. He led us there. By following His lead, when He leads us with His staff, this is where we're headed to this table of abundance, to the house of His presence. That's where we're going. But we get there by following Him. Now, think of the context, though. The very idea of leading. Your shepherd does things to give you guidance. And then you choose to follow that guidance in order to be led. You make the choice. To follow guidance. So there's something he's doing and then there's something you're doing to follow that guidance. In order to be led, there has to be direction that you choose to follow. And that's the picture in this psalm. And that's the picture of being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're talking about. So I just give you a a quick brief picture right out of the Old Covenant. One of the most well-known psalms. And yet it's all through there. So just a brief amount of review we started in Romans 8 14 says as many as are led by the spirit of God these are the sons of God we have a divine guide living on the inside of us and we both should and can are able to be aware of him to follow his leading to follow his guidance I have said there are millions of Christians on the earth right now, good people who love God, who do not believe that's possible. They do not believe you can be led by Him. They do not believe man is capable of being led by Him. But as I'm trying to show you, that disagrees with Scripture. Both Old and New Testaments. He absolutely leads His sheep. He absolutely gives us the direction that we need to end up where He would like us to be. Um, we went to Hebrews 1 verse 2. It's God, coming from the previous verse, God has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And how has His Son spoken to us? In the very way He told us right before He went to the cross. In John sixteen thirteen, He said, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is our guide, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will, he will tell you things to come. The Holy Spirit is our guide in this day and hour we live in, in what Scripture calls the last days. The Holy Spirit is our guide, and he leads us and guides us. I've said this, 
The Holy Spirit is the voice of Jesus to you. Whatever Jesus would say to you is what the Holy Spirit then repeats because he only says to you what he hears. He is the voice of Jesus to us. So with all that in mind, let's keep the sheep thing for a little bit. And let's go over to John chapter 10. Um, Another place in Scripture, New Testament, that talks about shepherds and sheep. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 1. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So I won't dwell here, but he does point out there's more than one way in. There's God's way to get there, but there are other ways to get there. There are other paths even into the sheepfold, which is interesting. But he says, if you're coming in the wrong way, you're a thief and you're a robber. He says, the right way in is through that door. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep, they do what? They hear his voice. Sheep hear the voice of their shepherd and he calls his own sheep by name. And then, I think some people read it this way, and then he puts obstacles in their way to direct them in the way they should go. He puts calamity in their life to get their attention because they're just not listening. Why? Because they're not capable of understanding. Apparently that's how some people are reading that. No, I just want to leave it exactly the way it is. It says, the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, this may sound like a silly question, but does Jesus know your name? Of course he does. Jesus knows your name. Uh, I thought of a, a, a just, now we're going to, don't have time to turn here, but a brief Old Testament example. Do you remember the prophet Samuel? Samuel was the one who got dropped off. Um, he, he was a, a miracle child for Hannah. And she, once she got him weaned, she delivered him to the house of the Lord to be raised by the prophet to serve. She gave him as an offering back to God is what was going on. And so he's being raised in the house of the Lord by the prophet Eli. And long story short, there came the time when God spoke to Samuel and he said, Samuel, and Samuel jumped up, ran into Eli and said, I'm here. What do you want? Eli's like, I didn't call you. Of course, I don't think he said it, but he's thinking, yeah, you did. (laughs) But he's like, no, he said, go back to bed. And didn't that happen three times? Three times, Samuel. Yeah, Eli, what do you want? I didn't call you. Finally, Eli puts it together. And he says, it's not me. The next time you hear your name, you say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's exactly what happened. God said, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And I, I feel for Samuel, that was his first experience. He was stepping into the office of prophets, what was going on. And the first thing the Lord said to him was all the bad things that were going to happen to his boss. <laughs> This is not part of my message, but the next morning, Eli says, did Lord speak to you? And he's like, uh-huh. what did he say? I want to tell you. <laughs> he's like, you tell me what the Lord said. All right. And he did. And Eli knew it. He knew. He knew it was right. Anyway, that's, that's an f- awesome story to study. But I just want to get at this point. God knew his name. 
called him by name, just like the psalm said. Called him by name, just like Jesus said in John 10. Called him by name. New Testament example, one we looked at, was it last week I think it was? Ananias. If you go back and look, that experience when Jesus told Ananias, okay, there's this guy over here uh, named Saul. I need you to go pray for him. And he's like, no, not Saul. Oh, he kills Christians. But you go back and look at that. He called him by name. He said, Ananias. And he said, yes, Lord, here I am. He knew his name. Now, that may seem like a silly point, but I'm making the point. Does Jesus know your name? Is he capable of communicating to you intelligently, calling you by your name, and then giving you the instruction that he would want to give you? Clearly, yeah, he is capable. And I don't think anyone doubts that. Where the doubt comes in is on the other end. Are we capable of hearing? Are we capable on our end? So, look at verse 4. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them in a place of leading. And the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. Um, are you his sheep? Then what did Jesus say? You know his voice. So we get in this interesting place where there are many Christians that would say to me, yeah, I, I don't know his voice. I, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. I am his sheep. I'm going to heaven when I die. I will spend eternity in the presence with God. But, but I don't know his voice. And so you kind of put me in this place of, well, do you want me to believe you or Jesus? Because Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. Now, I'm not saying you're not his sheep. I'm going the other way. Um, you do know his voice. You may not realize it yet, but Jesus said, um, second member of the Godhead, head of the New Testament church, our Lord and Savior, he said, you know his voice. So I would say then to a person who says, I don't think I know his voice. I would say, well, um, Jesus says you do. So this is one of those places where you need to step into this by faith. This is one of those places that your experience disagrees with what Scripture teaches, with what Jesus said. He said, you know, his voice. So what do we need to do then? We need to, step one, believe it. That's, that's, this is a faith issue. Step number one, well, Jesus said, I know his voice. I don't know that I know his voice, but I trust him. I believe him. So I'm going to choose to agree with him. And I'm just going to choose to believe. All right, Jesus, you said I know your voice. Okay, I know your voice. I may not experience it. Maybe I don't recognize it. But if you said I know it, I know it. So that's, that's that first step of just I'm going to choose to believe. It's kind of that... Is it 1 Corinthians 5, 7? We walk by faith, not by sight. My walk by sight tells me I don't hear his voice. But faith says I do. So I'm going to choose to agree with what the Bible says. And I'm going to line up my, what's the second step? Line up my words to bring my words in agreement with his words. 
There's a passage, I'm not going to turn there, but it's over in uh, the book of Hebrews. It says, Jesus is the apostle and high priest of your confession. He listens to the words that come out of your mouth. And I'm not just talking about when you get on your knees, so to speak, in your prayer closet. He's listening every time your mouth opens. That's a humbling thought. Everyone kind of gets quiet. He even listens to those idle words. We could turn and look at that verse if you want to. (laughs) Every time we open our mouth, he's hearing our words. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So if we're smart, we choose to line up our words with what he says. In fact, if you look into that word confession, it's the Greek word homologeo. Um, homo meaning the same where we get our word homogenous it, it's the same and in logeo which is it comes from the root word logos which is word and it has to do with speaking and it literally translated means to say the same thing as what's he listening to out of our mouth when we allow our words or we choose to have our words speak the same as his words We put his words in our mouth. Just like that verse in John 10. You said that I hear your voice, so I say with my mouth, I am his sheep. I know his voice. The voice of a stranger I will not follow. I follow the voice of my shepherd. I hear the voice of my shepherd. And I follow his leading. That's the first step. Also in the book of Hebrews, it says, By faith and patience we receive the promises of God. He does not say you receive the promises of God because he made the promise. We don't receive promises because they're in the Bible. No, he said by faith and patience. So the faith is the first piece. You have to believe the promise. Dare to believe that what the Bible said is actually true, even if it's not been my experience. But if I will believe it, that's the first step toward it becoming my experience. And then, but what's that second piece? There's that word again. Patience. Just because you believe it and say it one time doesn't mean it's automatically now you're walking 100% in that promise of God. No, there may be a little bit of a season there where you begin to line up with His Word and then things begin working in you as you stay in agreement with Him and He begins to make changes in you and in, in your environment or whatever He needs to do to bring you into that promise. So our part is to line up in agreement, believing his word, and then staying there patiently until we see the fruit of it. And it does become our experience. That's the faith walk. That's what faith's all about. We walk by faith, not by sight. So we say, I am his sheep. I hear his voice. And the voice of a stranger I'll not follow. I follow the voice of my shepherd. Hmm. I want to go over to Ephesians chapter 5. It seems like I've been here a lot recently. I don't know if that's accurate. Um, last, even last several series, I think I hit here at one point or another, but we're going to do it again this morning. This might become a familiar verse for many. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. He says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. We're to walk wisely, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That was true when he said it. How about now? 
Therefore, what? Because of what he just said, we're to walk circumspectly as wise. Why? Because the days are evil. We need to redeem the time. He says, therefore, do not be unwise. That's the second time in three verses. He said, don't be unwise. He says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, we often walk into situations in our life where we're not sure what his will is in that situation. But we're not supposed to stay there. What he says, don't be in that position. When you walk into a position of not knowing what his will is, get in your prayer closet, get before him until you find out what is his will in that situation. Then you can step into that situation with confidence, knowing this is what God wants here, and here's how I need to proceed. And now you can walk in faith because faith is confidence. You are not supposed to just bounce around wondering, looking back after the fact, going, oh, that's what God wanted. He says, don't be unwise. He says, be wise, knowing what the will of the Lord is. There are many people that just try to muddle their way through, just doing what seems like is probably the best way to go. Can I remind you of a proverb? Uh, Proverb 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. But its end is the way of death. We're not supposed to do what seems right to us. We're supposed to do what seems right to Him. We're supposed to figure out what He wants us to do and follow that path. Because we just don't know enough. We don't see every angle. We don't know every heart. We're doing the best we can, but Proverbs says what seems right to us is not going to end well. We need guidance. We need help. What's the good news? It's available. You can get it. You can get guidance from Him. You can get direction from Him. Help is available. You have a guide on the inside of you. The Holy Spirit who wants to help you. And Jesus said, you can hear His voice. Are you with me? Jesus said, when you learn to recognize His guidance and follow His plan and step into His plan for your life, guess what? You become, this is not a scriptural word, you become one happy camper. Yeah, because you're right where he wants you to be, where he has already provided for you the provisions there, the protections there, guidance, and you walk peacefully knowing, I'm following his plan. You're not wandering through life, wondering what his will is. No, you found his will and you walk with confidence. That's the picture of those three verses in Ephesians. Um, Ephesians, go back to uh, verse... 15, he says, see then that you walk circumspectly. That's not a word we use every day. I don't remember the last time I used the word circumspectly when I wasn't reading this verse. (laughs) All right. That word means exactly, accurately, and it does carry the implication diligently. All right. Um, Young's literal translation, he says, see then how exactly you walk. Um, the Weist translation, I like this one. Be constantly taking heed, therefore, how accurately you are conducting yourself. There's this picture of just not wandering around loosely, but moving with Accuracy in every step you take. The word I want to use here is 
precision in how you move. Um, you jump down to verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Um, the, the Phillips translation, and not mine, <laughs> J.B. Phillips, he says, don't be vague, but firmly grasp what you know to be the will of God. The Amplified, he says, Therefore, do not be vague and thoughtless and foolish, but understanding and firmly grasping what the will of the Lord is. That's a picture of our walk with Him. It's not to be vague and a lot of guessing. We're supposed to spend enough time with Him to get a firm grasp on exactly how He wants us to proceed. It may not be every step. He may tell you the next step. And when you take that step, then he'll give you more. But we will always have enough to take the step in front of us with confidence, knowing I'm following him. I know what his will is. Are you with me? I compare this to precision guidance. Why? Because we live in the Midwest, and we live in an agricultural-based society, And because I worked on a farm for many years and I watched precision guidance enter agriculture. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know it better than I do because you're educated in that. And some of you may not know at all what I'm talking about. But I watched in farming. Now, I didn't, I did not work in the horse and buggy days or that. No, no, none of that stuff. When I stepped into farming, it was fully mechanized. Okay, but even then, for years, how good of a job you did was dependent on how good of a farmer you were, on how good of a machinery operator you were. When it went time to plant, how straight of a line can you drive? And how good of a job can you do? Because what do you want when you plant a field? Your plants need to be a certain population. You want enough of them out there to get a good yield. You don't want too many. They'll crowd each other. You don't want too few. Now you're just, you could have done better. You could have had more yield, but you put too few. But then one thing that means is you, the word you don't want in farming is overlap. The problem is that's human nature. And back in the old days, that's how you made sure you didn't leave blank areas in a field. You overlapped. And in planting, and this is really the smaller deal, but in planting, then every time when they're going back and forth, putting seed in the ground, they'd be turning on the ends. And every time they'd be overlapping because you don't want to leave any bare dirt. That's evil in the eyes of a farmer. You don't want to see bare dirt. What are you looking for as quickly as possible? Canopy. I've learned that word. That's when the leaves get big enough, they start crowding out bare dirt so that no sunlight gets to weeds that want to grow up in your field. All right, you want canopy. So there's all these things going on. So to make sure you got coverage, they'd overlap. But what's that really mean for the accountant? You're putting seed in the ground that we we had to pay for that you didn't need. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, there was even a time when farmers would then go back in with a cultivator and they would cultivate out all that extra overlap they didn't need because they wanted everything to look pretty. All right, they'd do all this. But what's the accountant saying? You're now hoeing out seed that I had to pay for, (laughs) you know? Now, planting is one thing. Where this really came to bear was in chemicals, in spraying. You know why? Because chemicals, I mean, you thought seed is expensive, but chemicals, are you kidding me? I still remember, this is my story, and I still remember, I think this was in the 90s. 
when we were spraying somewhere. And it wasn't for the whole everything. It was just a, a field or two that we were running short on chemical. Didn't have enough to finish the job. And my boss said, hop in your truck, run down to Galesville and get me some chemical. He'd already called in the order. They knew I was coming, but go get me some chemical. So good little employee, I hop in my pickup truck, I run down to Galesville and they start throwing boxes in my truck. And before I leave, I said, hey, how much money did you just put in the back of my truck? And he said, well, um, doing a little quick math in his head and he said, about $40,000 in the 90s. Believe it or not, worth more than the truck they just put it in. <laughs> worth a little more than my bi-weekly paycheck. In fact, I believe at that time, worth a little more than my annual salary. You know, this was 90s, you know. I drove carefully and with precision all the way back to the farm to get this where it needs to be and get it out of my truck. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that was years ago. Can you imagine today? So back to the human nature thing. What's human nature? When you go out to spray a field, you want to make sure you spray every square inch of dirt and plant in that field and you don't want to leave anything unsprayed. So what do you do? Overlap. But now you're overlapping with chemicals that are very expensive. So when precision guidance came along, they're saying, we're going to take your mechanized machinery, we're going to combine it with the latest computer technology and connect you to half a dozen satellites in the sky and maybe a few cell towers on the ground, and we know what you're doing within an inch or less at anywhere in that field. And then we start automating things so that you are incapable of overlap. As you are spraying your field and you get to an area you already sprayed, the computer just starts flipping things off and then flipping things back on. And it eliminates very effectively all that overlap. Now, a lot of farmers when this came along said, well, that sounds pretty neat and all, but uh, what's the price tag on this little jewel? And it was salty. And there were several farmers slow. I mean, maybe some today still don't. I don't know. But there were some, and I still remember this, because I, it was in, I got sent to a, a training seminar for some computer software we were using, and they sent me to Fargo. Not because it was the closest, but because it was at the right time. I was able to go. And so I am in Fargo in November. They had about two feet of snow on the ground. The temperatures were below zero and there was a wind chill knocking on 30 below zero. And here I am in Fargo. Fortunately for me, all of my training was in a, like a conference room in a hotel and it was the same hotel I was staying in. The hotel was feeding me breakfast because it came with my room and the conference was feeding me lunch and supper and I didn't have to leave. And I didn't. I didn't leave that building for, I think it was three days or something, I was at this training seminar. All that to say, I'm having lunch with a bunch of farmers from Fargo, and sure enough, that's what they're talking about, this new precision guidance. And the guy at the table who very quickly took charge of the conversation said, guys, you can't afford not to do this. He said, what you will save in chemical cost will pay for the technology. And here I am thinking, Ooh, I'm getting smart. I'm learning all kinds of stuff here. And I come running back to Illinois with my newfound information. And I go tell my boss. And he says, yeah, I know. That's why we're doing it. 
He's always a few steps ahead of me. I was doing my best to keep up. But that's what, especially the early adopters, they figured that out. That what you saved because of the precision paid for the equipment. Now, I'd love to give you more numbers like that, but I don't think my former boss wants you wants me announcing all of his income statements and spreadsheets and all this. So, so I'm going to change examples on you. Because that's not the only industry that has benefited from precision guidance. Here is what some would say is a much more important industry than agriculture, and that's golf. Some might say that. I don't know. But likewise, if you've ever noticed, most golf courses are beautiful and gorgeous. Finely manicured, well-maintained. You'll have beautiful grass fairways. You've got nice maintained rough on the sides of your fairways. The greens are gorgeous with a very special type of grass. They spend a lot of money to give you a very precise environment. But they're using chemicals to do that. And they have sprayers and they're doing all the same kind of stuff. And I read a story. This was a specific golf course in Pennsylvania back when this was first coming out. And they were telling the story. They said, we remember the first time a salesman showed up and gave us the pitch on precision guidance. And they thought, well, you know, it sounds really neat. But the question, what's the price tag? For them, the price tag was $70,000 to get into this technology at that time. And this was probably 20 years ago. And they said, sounds wonderful, but we don't have $70,000 sitting in our budget. But rather than just dismiss it, they just they kept pushing, and they began to realize, number one, um, first thing they decided was call the banker. Can we spread this out? Will you finance this? And the banker said, yeah, I will finance you over five years. So we cut that down to about 15000 a year over five years. And I don't know about interest, but these are just some numbers. And then he thought, okay, well, if my savings then, by eliminating the overlap, if my savings is 15000 a year, I can pay for the equipment. That'll make the payment at the bank and a wash on the cash flow. Reduce this line, make this payment, we wash, and we get new equipment. So they said, all right, let's do it. Bank gave them the loan. They got the new equipment. Year one, we're hoping that we can cut $15,000 out of the chemical line. He said, at the end of the year, I reduced my chemical line by $27,000. That's how much overspray they were spraying every year. He said, we laughed. He said, looking back, we're like, how could you not do that? He said, it's like, it's like a tool to print money, he said. <laughs> so then I kept reading. I found a second example, again, on a golf course. This one was in New York. He gave it numbers in a different way. This guy had been working this golf course for many, many years, most of his life. He knew his job and he knew it well. He knew what chemicals to spray, where, at what times of the year. And there was a specific job that he says, this job will take me exactly 280 gallons of whatever chemical to go do this whole golf course one time. He said, I've been doing it for years. But they came to the day where they bought the precision guidance and bought the equipment. And he said, he said it was habit. I've been doing this for years. I wasn't even thinking about it. Loaded up my sprayer with 280 gallons of the chemical because that's what I do every year. He said, wasn't even thinking about it. But now he's got this new technology and he starts flipping everything on and he's doing precision guidance and he says, I get done. And he says, I drive back into the shed and I still have 50 gallons of chemical in my tank wherever your previous I'd have been empty. Same story. 
when you bring in the precision guidance, it makes you more efficient, it makes you more accurate, and it saves you money in that case. And it made everything to wash. So why am I telling all these stories? That's what I see in Ephesians when he says walk circumspectly. You walk with an, an exactness, with an accuracy to what you do because you've taken the time to get in his presence and figure out what his plan is and now you're walking through life not wandering and wondering but taking every step with an exactness with a precision to what you do living life with an exactness he did not intend us to live life by the seat of our pants even when that's sometimes fun (laughs) that's not his plan That's not his nature. Think of God. He is so detail-oriented. When you think of the universe, God did not just grab a handful of stars, whip them out into our sky and say, that's good enough. That'll work. Looks kind of pretty. Not like my painting in kindergarten. This has nothing to do with it, but I did that in kindergarten. It was one of those moments that, that... I don't know what the word is. It brands you as a kid. You never forget. Had an art class in kindergarten and we're supposed to be, I don't know what we're supposed to be painting. I know what I did. I took the paintbrush. I'm dipping it in paint and I'm standing about three feet back and I'm doing this. I'm doing modern art and I'm doing a splatter painting. I think the problem is I didn't stay within the lines. I put paint everywhere and I got chewed out by my teacher. She was not happy with me. And in hindsight, because she probably spent a lot of time cleaning up after me. But in my little five-year-old mind, my product was beautiful. It's what I was trying to do. And when I went home, my mom said it was beautiful. And she hung it on the wall. I don't know, refrigerator, wall, somewhere. I remember she hung it up and praised me for it. And I thought, <laughs> teacher don't know what she's talking about. I, I remember at five years old, you know. Anyway, how do we get there? Oh, God does not just scatter things in the sky. He has put everything up there with precision and with guidance. Um, they call Earth the Goldilocks planet. Because if we were just a little closer to the sun, it'd be too hot to support life here. Likewise, if we were just a little further away, it'd be too cold to support life here. We are the exact distance from the sun that we need to be to support life. So they call it the Goldilocks, like kind of like the three bears. One bear was too hard, or one bear. One bed was too hard, one bed was too soft, and one was just right. We are the just right planet. And that was not an accident. God is a God of precision. He put it exactly where he wanted. And he gave it a spin at the exact speed he needs. Sin has messed that up, but that's another message for another day. (laughs) But he is a precise God. Think about the human body. How many examples could we give of how precise and intricate and exact the human body is? And how amazing, uh, Scripture says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Um, One little example as I was studying it a while back, is the human brain. Because they're still learning. That's, that's the most mysterious organ that they're still trying to learn, that they haven't fully grasped, is the brain. They, a lot of other organs in your body, they have really figured a lot out. But the brain is still mysterious. But one estimate that was interesting to me, and this is not by Christians, 
This is an estimate by scientists who don't even believe in God, who don't read the Bible, just based on their intelligence. But here's their estimate. They said the human brain has the capacity to store three and a half million years of daily information of your life. That your brain has the capacity, if you lived three and a half million years, your brain would remember it. Now, I'm not saying you're utilizing your brain like we should. Again, I'll point back to the fall. But, and that's a conservative estimate. How did God create you? Far bigger than you realize. And far more intricate. They said that your body and your brain is you're processing things all the time. Most of them you're not even aware of. Automated things going on in your body. Impulses sent out by the brain to all the different parts of your body. Telling your heart to beat. Telling blood to flow. And then all the different things going on that very few of them you take the time to consciously think, okay, now beat. Um, eyes, you need to blink. No, no, okay, no. no. We're just, it's automated. But they said, how many things are automated in your brain? Um, they said your body processes 10 to the 24th power. Um, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of a one with 24 zeros after it. Pieces of information every day that you consciously probably didn't even think about. Did not think about. But that's what your body is doing. Your brain is doing that every day. 10 to the 24th power bits of information. That is more bits of information than all of the libraries on planet Earth combined. And you do it every day. You are intricately and very detailed in your design. Intricately made, detailed in your design. God is a God of precision. And He'll lead us in a life of precision if we follow the leading of our shepherd. As I close this morning, I want to go back to something we looked at last week. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? And I was just pointing out that he was being led by the Holy Spirit. And there came a point when he was coming across from the east, heading west, and he wanted to go into Asia. Um, not to be confused, what we consider Asia today is up more to the Middle East. Back in that day, Asia was considered um, kind of the east side of the Mediterranean. I think it's been called Asia Minor. I am not a geography major, but it's in that region. And he was headed that direction. He wanted to go to Asia. And if you remember the verse we looked at last week, the Holy Spirit forbade him or forbid him, told him, no, don't go there. And, and we talked about that last week. But I kind of want to show you what was going on. And so what I've got is a map. If you can put that map on the screen. He starts, that's Jerusalem. He starts up here in Antioch. Um, apparently he made a trip down and back before he went off. But this is his second missionary journey. And he starts here in Antioch and he's taken off through Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. All through this region is the region of Galatia. That's where he went on his first missionary journey. That's where he was stoned and left for dead. He had several churches he started there. And he's coming back through that region that he'd already been through the first time but now it's the second time and so as he's cutting through here it's about here where he wanted to go down into Asia and the Holy Spirit said no don't go there so he said okay so then he kind of he went around it he went north into something there called I don't know is that 
Mysia? It's M-Y-S-I-A. I don't know how you pronounce that one. But he took off that direction. And then it was when he got over here to Troas when he had the vision of the guy from Macedonia saying, come to us, come to us. And so that's when he said, okay. And he jumped the water, went up here into Greece. Up here is when he went to Philippi, um, Antioch. I wrote down several of them here that he went to. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, all of them in this second missionary journey when he went to Macedonia. Okay, it was five years later from when he was up there in Troas or in Antioch and in Troas. Yeah, it was five years later that he he still didn't go. He sent Achilla and Priscilla ahead of him. They went into Asia and began to prepare the way. Kind of like think when John the Baptist began to prepare the way for Jesus is coming. Achilla and Priscilla went in and began preparing the way for Paul's coming. Um, you might think they're kind of working the soil. They're kind of getting some seeds planted. They're starting to stir interest in people's hearts. They're probably doing a whole lot of praying, but preparing the way before the Apostle Paul ever gets there. And I believe, I believe it was another three years they were there before he got there. I might be a little off on that. Eventually, he does make it to Asia. It's not that he didn't go. The time wasn't right. And the Holy Spirit was telling him, he, the Holy Spirit didn't say, no, not yet. He just said, no. Years later, Holy Spirit said, now, go to Asia. And what happened in Asia? He landed in Ephesus. And he spent three years in Ephesus. And he established what became the biggest Christian church of its day. Ephesus became the hub of Christianity for many generations, especially after A.D. 70 when the church in Jerusalem fell, when the Roman army marched through Israel and dispersed them and leveled Jerusalem, leveled the temple, just like Jesus prophesied. And there was no more Christianity in Jerusalem. That's another story, but there wasn't. Everything moved to Ephesus. Even after the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both went to heaven, their, their jobs were done, they went home to be with the Lord, the Apostle John remained for many more decades in Ephesus. He was living just outside of Ephesus. He became the leader of the Christian church, the only one remaining from the original generation. And he continued to keep his promise to the Lord Jesus at the cross when he said, take care of my mom. That's my paraphrase. But he said, John, your mother. Mom, your son. And he did. He kept Mary with him till they both passed away. They had houses just outside of Ephesus. And the biggest Christian church in that generation, Ephesus. Why? Because Paul went there. But it was with precision. If Paul had gone too early, it wouldn't have been ready. The hearts weren't prepared. Can I say the soil wasn't ready? And it would have not worked. He probably would have gotten very frustrated and probably would have been tempted to shake the dust off his feet as he left Asia and would never have wanted to have gone back. Why? Because he got the timing wrong. If we will follow God's timing, there is a precision to how he will lead us. And there is not just a what we do, there is a when we do it, there's even a how we do it. But if we will take the time to follow him, he will lead us with accuracy, with exactness, with precision. That's how he's wired. That's who he is. And that's how he wants to lead. Amen.